1: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio. On the web at publishersweekly.com slash radio. And streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and AudiobookRadio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor of Publishers Weekly.
2: And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And we're bringing you the very best of book talk, directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
1: On today's show, Chef Todd Richards discusses his new cookbook, Soul, a chef's culinary evolution in 150 recipes. Then PW Director of Special Editorial Projects, Craig Teicher previews BookCon.
2: But But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller list. Powered by NPD BookScan. What's happening in hardcover nonfiction?
1: Well, number three, we have one by Michael Pollan. It's a starred review. It's uh, How to Change Your Mind. What the new science of psychedelics teaches us about consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, and transcendence. Exciting. Uh, Yes. And and we say that he shifts his focus. You know, he's he's known for cooked and and other food writing, Mm -hmm. uh, or at least writing about the food we eat and health. Shifts his focus to other uses of plants in this brilliant history of psychedelics across cultures and generations, the neuroscience of its effects and the revival of research on its potential to heal mental illness. Uh, We say that this nuanced and sophisticated exploration, which asks big questions about meaning making and spiritual existence, is thought provoking and eminently readable. Number four, we have Three Days in Moscow, Ronald Reagan and the Fall of the Soviet Empire by Brett Beyer with Catherine Whitney. Beyer, who's the author of Three Days in January. Where the um, chief political anchor for Fox News, uh, tenders a nostalgic account of the Reagan era and the end of the Cold War. We say readers who hold Reagan in high regard will likely appreciate Byers' uh, burnishing of the myths surrounding him. But those interested in a rigorous historical investigation will be disappointed. At number 10, we have Men in Blazers present uh, encyclopedia Blazer Tanica, a suboptimal <laughs> guide to soccer, America's sport of the future since 1972. And this is a bit of an encyclopedia Britannica of soccer from 1972 that includes everything from players throughout there and all how different nationalities wear their uh, scarves, um, their fan scarves. So there's a bunch of stuff in there. That's at number 10. At number 12, we have a biography of Robin Williams by Dave Itzkoff, who's the author of Mad as Hell. We say, according to this perceptive biography, comedian Robin Williams was a man driven by a deep need for adulation and acceptance. Meticulously sourced and comprehensive in scope, Itzkoff's work gives Williams' many fans a rare glimpse of the man behind Celebrity. And finally, at number 15, a memoir by uh, Keith Hernandez called I'm Keith Hernandez. Uh, And this is the uh, introduction. We say this is an entertaining memoir by the two-time World Series champion and five-time all-star Keith Hernandez, who claims he set out not to write a boring baseball book and uh, turns out he did not. It was, uh, it's lively, fun, and lots of insightful anecdotes. And, uh, that's what we have in nonfiction. What's the fiction list looking like?
2: Well, over in fiction, we have a new number one, Danielle Steals the Cast. We don't have a review of this. Um, But the book follows a talented and creative woman as she launches her first television series, helping to recruit an unforgettable cast that will bring a dramatic family saga to the screen. So this is a little meta. Steele is known for writing those dramatic family Mm. sagas. And this is about someone making a show that fictionalizes a dramatic family saga. But I'm sure that there will be plenty of drama behind the scenes uh, on the set as well. So that's that's what people come for. So you, you get a little twofer here um, and no surprise that that's at the top of the bestseller list. Steel is a very reliable bestseller and has been for approximately as long as I've been alive. Um, sold about 26,000 copies right out of the gate, according to NPD book scan at number four by invitation only by dorothea benton frank um this is uh set in the low country of south carolina again we don't have a review of it but uh it's a another drama of sorts um lots of uh, interpersonal interfamilial happenings um and uh, this begins on a celebration of an engagement and uh some things go dangerously wrong And uh, moving down the list a while, uh, The Favorite Sister is at number 14. That's by Jessica Knoll. We gave this a starred review so that Knoll explores the blurry line between a reality show and real life and the duplicity of family ties and friendship in this razor-sharp, darkly comic thriller. Uh, It starts with a grisly murder, and uh, then it turns out that uh, several of the narrators uh, looking at this are contestants on the reality show Gold Diggers, which hypes the accomplishments of unmothers and unwives and is rung by a conniving and high profile network executive. And so the murder mystery is engrossing enough in its own right, we say, but uh, Noah's novel is most notable as a potent takedown of a reality show obsessed culture that seeks out the spotlight rather than harder truths. All right. And finally, down at number 19, The 49th Mystic by Ted Decker. Uh, this is, uh, Beyond the Circle book one, and uh, Decker already created a series called The Circle, and this is a spin-off from that series, uh, the uh, the first installment of a two-part series. We call it Enthralling. Um, It's about a blind woman living in a utopian community who starts having horrific nightmares that come to life, so a bit of a supernatural thriller. She discovers that she is the 49th mystic, and she must rediscover the five seals of truth in order to show people the way beyond fear, Uh, So uh, several faith elements woven into this. And uh, we say that this treacherous journey to find the five seals mirrors a Christian on a quest to discover who they are in God's eyes. And uh, it's creatively entwined with teachings from scripture and will appeal to readers looking for a thrilling, faith-driven adventure. All right. Well, I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Next up, Todd Richards tells us about his culinary evolution. We'll be right back. I'm Mark Oshiro, author of Anger is a Gift, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
2: I'm Rose Fox.
1: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
2: Today we've got Todd Richards on the line. His new book is Soul, A Chef's Culinary Evolution in 150 Recipes. Todd, so glad you could join us.
0: Thank you all for having me.
2: Very, very happy to have you here. So, you're a James Beard nominated chef for your Atlanta restaurant, Richard Southern Fried, and this is your first cookbook. When did you know it was time to write a cookbook?
0: I really knew it was time to write a cookbook when I started um, forgetting all the recipes <laughs> that I had in my head, you know, and I said, I got to start writing these things down. And I really wanted to tell the intimate story of my family. Uh, my story is being an African-American chef and a story of delicious food and how we can all come together under uh, one uh, umbrella of soul food.
1: So so you just mentioned soul food. What is your definition of soul food?
0: Well, soul food in, in the historical sense started in 1950s and 60s. But soul food for me was a a... A way that my family always wanted to come together and celebrate. Every birthday, holiday, Christmas, Easter was always at our house. Uh, we found any reason to to come together. And we brought all of the food stuff from my family, including, and my family could be one, it could be 5,000. It really doesn't matter as long as you were able to produce really delicious food.
2: And give us a little bit of a a history of southern food to start us off. There's so many influences on the cuisine of the region.
0: There there is. You know, specifically, you know, in southern and soul food, you know, you have to start with what's regional. Uh, In the south, you know, pork was big at that point in time. So ingredients like collard greens with ham hocks almost, you know, instantaneously make sense. The way that the fat from the pork will preserve all the pot liquor and greens down below. And then there's other different variations of biscuits and cornbread, of course, which naturally happen in the South. And that's probably a, a big uh, debate among Southerners. You know, biscuits or cornbread, cakes or pies, and sugar and cornbread. But also, it's just really sound techniques that made um, best out of, um, you know, sometimes meager ingredients that use, you know, uh, classically and probably technical uh, preserving methods that we still use today.
2: One of the things that you talk about in the book is you correct notions like uh, collard greens coming to the New World via Africa. So tell us, tell us a little bit about that historical research that went into making this book happen.
0: Well, one thing I really wanted to do is is give reference points to the time before the the 1950s and 60s where people labeled soul food because I wanted to progress the notion that soul food just doesn't ha- have you know roots only in that one time period, and that me as a fine dining chef looks at that time period and want to move food forward. So when I look at collard greens in the book, the first recipe is the most traditional basic form of collard greens with the ham, hock, onions, and then it progresses to turkey, and then we open up to a whole gamut of dishes like collard green ramen, collard green pesto, uh, and what we serve at Southern Fried, our collard green waffle as well.
1: So just talking about the collard green real quick, you, you do mention certain, uh, you, you, you talk about the ramen noodles. At, at what point did you start uh, in changing or at least innovating how you handled you know, or cooked with collard greens?
0: It, it is so funny uh, how that dish came about. That dish actually came about when I was like five years old. My mom had this insatiable love for Chinese food. And my dad, in the most frugal way, said that if we're going to eat out, we also have to utilize some leftovers on the table as well. We could not just have food you know, sitting in a refrigerator and not eat them. And so we had uh, um, this uh, place in Chicago, 87th and Jeffrey, that had the best uh, noodle soup. It was noodles, a little bit of slice of pork belly, uh, soft-boiled egg, and a ton of scallions. And then we would heat collard greens and go with it. So in that same bowl that went on the table, we had this wonderful broth, wonderful soup, we added the collard greens that were cooked with vinegar and ham hock and other spices. And that's how this dish started. So this dish is part of a, a repertoire of dishes. But it really started when I was five, six years old.
1: So I, I want to go back to that. You, I want to talk about your, your path to becoming a chef. Um, so here you are you know, being introduced to and, and cooking with food when you're five, six years old. And you, I think you said Chicago. Tell us a little bit about your, your life and uh, how, how you became a chef.
0: Well, my dad worked um, from 8 at night to 8 in the morning, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. So during the week, he was always home. And he always cooked when he was home. My dad's from a uh, family from Louisiana. And then my mom, uh, who, who did not cook that often but had a repertoire of about 10, 12 dishes, uh, her family came out of the Carolinas. So we had this mashing of cultures. Um, and at the dinner table, my my dad would red beans and 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 rice. My mom would other rice dishes and fried catfish. And then also because my dad worked downtown, we would go downtown and meet him for dinner a lot and explore all the restaurants in the neighborhood. And that's really that Chicago sensibility that came. And then my next door neighbor, I was from Little Rock, Arkansas, and my great aunt was in Little Rock, so we would travel up and down the highway. Uh, going to Little Rock and just eating food all the way there, back and forth. And that was really the basis of the emphasis of why I love to cook and love to be with people, and, and really the emphasis of the beginning of the cookbook.
2: Sometimes it feels like cooking can be considered a very gendered thing. Do you think it really helped having a father who cooked growing up so that you knew that this was something you could do, rather than just having that idea that women were in the kitchen?
0: you know in, in our household um, everyone cooks and, and and it didn't really matter by by gender or by age uh it mattered about how delicious the meal was. There were some people that brought some food to our house that weren't really invited invited back you know because it wasn't good I, we always <laughs> wanted to, to to come together and, and and that was uh it was really never gender specific and, and that really helped me in my career though because if anyone knows that i i I am a champion of, of, of civil rights in, in kitchens. And I've had five women executive chefs It's probably unheard of, you know, in that time period from 1990s to now. And, and and to see that and not just have women just relegated to one part of the kitchen in the pantry, I, I, I believe that if you're just a really great cook, then you can do whatever you want in the kitchen.
1: So tell us about your road to becoming a chef. What was your first uh, uh, paid cooking gig?
0: That's so 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 interesting. That I was leaving Chicago, University of Illinois Chicago, uh, coming down to Atlanta. I was going to transfer to Georgia Tech. Uh, However, I was just burnt out on college, and I just really wanted to do something different. And I went to um, a grocery chain um, in Atlanta, and. You know, they were hiring, and they said, hey, can you work in the meat department? Can you do all the meat wrapping? They said, yeah, I mean, is it cellophane and is meat? I mean, I'm sure it's not that difficult to figure out. And then a few months, you know, while I was doing that, they were showing me other ideas of, you know, how to slice the meat, how to use a bandsaw. You know, where does this come from? And a lot of these things I learned from my dad, uh, he used to grill meats all the time. So my first job was a butcher, and then there was another restaurant across the street that needed someone to work the grill. And I said, well, hell, if I can figure, if I can you know, cut the meat, I can break it all down. Cooking, it shouldn't be that hard. And so I worked at the the grocery store in the morning, worked the grill at night, and never really looked back from there.
1: And this was, uh, we were talking before about uh, how uh, my family lived in Tucker, and uh, this is the Kroger's in Tucker, Georgia.
0: Yeah, that's Kroger in Tucker, Georgia. And, and Blue Ribbon Grill is right across the street in North Lake, so It was great to see, and those uh, the chef who taught me uh, how to grill meat still owns the place uh, to this day.
2: So you started out at these, you know, fairly low end jobs. How did you get from there to running this uh, haute cuisine restaurant um, (laughs) that uh, you know? What what was what was the path there? What was the step?
0: Well, the chef, um, Chef Eddie, who is at Blue Ribbon Grill. He saw that I had an insatiable, uh, need to learn and, and was motivated to, to do more. And at some point in time, he told me he had nothing else to teach me. He said that I needed to go work in a, a, an environment in which I can, you know, learn as much as possible. And, uh, understanding that I love the idea of going to a hotel, uh, because we travel so much, uh, as a, as a child. We would go to hotels and seeing the chefs with the big hats on and and, in these stark white uh, chef coats and aprons was really something I was looking forward to. Not to mention that my grandmother and I would watch cooking shows every single Saturday from 7 in the morning to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We watched a whole lineup on on PBS. And that really once I stepped into the hotel and I saw the environment, saw so many different kitchens, just specializing the pastry kitchen with just the cakes and, and the cookies and making the croissants in the morning, the with the ice carving and, and room service. I was hooked. I mean I said I can sit here and learn from all these people and they're gonna pay me to do it. You know, that was really intriguing at that time.
2: So let's move into your cookbook, um, which you call Soul. What is it that brought you back to Soul Food and the concept of Soul when you were building this book?
0: What brought me back to the concept of Soul was really going back home uh, to understand how I got to be a chef. And and I really wanted to say to the world that Soul Food, from a technical standpoint, is is technically driven just like French food or Japanese food or this you know sensation that's happening around the world with Spanish and Latin food, that soul food is still that same technically driven cuisine that most people don't give it enough credit for, but it's a true American food. It is the truest form of American cuisine and American innovation. And I also wanted to be a, a, a lightning rod for African-American chefs to say that you can embrace your own culture's food and present it in the most sophisticated fine dining way that it still wouldn't be over people's heads but we can change the economy in our community as well
2: when you talk about it being technically driven, I think a lot of people with soul food talk about ingredients first. Tell us about technique, about what makes it a, a technical type of cooking and what, what you're focusing on there.
0: Well, I, I will say ingredients has a great part of, of making it that way. But I'm saying in technique that if you take something like chitlins, you know, that is, has to be washed, you know, you know, several times before you can even start preparing it. It has to be cooked at a certain temperature or in a pressure cooker in order to get it tender. Uh, it requires a good amount of spices, but if you over it, it will always fall apart. That that is more to it than just saying that it's just a pinch of this or a pinch of that. That it requires a great amount of know-how in order to get it done. The same thing when you look at traditional collard greens, that the, you know, using ham hock that the ham hock, wants the collard greens to gel and, and the fat rises to the top, that the fat is pre- uh, protecting all the collard greens and pot liquor below, that's the same kind of technique you use if you're making duck confit in French cuisine. So the, the, so the parallels of the technique are, are similar, even though the ingredients might be different.
1: So uh, I, I want to talk about some of these ingredients. So, um, so let's turn to onions, which you refer to as the backbone of soul cuisine.
0: They they are onions are are, are immensely important to so it gives the the flavor uh, to the dishes. What I call the bottom. I mean it it gives that that earthiness to all the dishes to let you know that someone is actually cooking and food is prepared uh, uh, correctly. And it doesn't have to overpower a dish. Even though my grandmother would eat onions raw, she would just slice them with tomatoes and a little bit of vinegar, salt and pepper on them. But it's always that foundation that gives the earthiness to a dish that makes it so soulful. I mean, it just enlivens the soul so much.
2: And you also talk about uh, grits and corn, and you mentioned the the cornbread controversy. So what's your position, sugar in cornbread or no? Uh,
0: Well, see, that's a great conversation that we always have about cornbread, because living in the South, there is no sugar. Coming from Chicago, there is sugar in cornbread. So I really just have to think about, you know, what what is the big difference in it. I like sugar in my cornbread, but I don't like my cornbread too sweet. And also, I think that it depends on the quality of butter that is served with it. If it's high quality butter, then it does it needs less sugar. You know, if it's lower quality butter, it, it, it could require a little bit of sugar. I like them both. I think they both have their place at the table. I think it's a great conversation uh, piece to always debate.
2: We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away.
1: Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
2: I'm Rose Fox.
1: And I'm Mark Rotella.
2: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio
1: every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com
2: Welcome back we're talking with Todd Richards, author of Soul, A Chef's Culinary Evolution in 150 Recipes
1: Let's talk about grits now, We've, we were just talking about cornbread, uh, what's your take on grits?
0: You know, grits are, are wonderful, I love grits personally my mom loved grits, but grits my dad did not really eat a lot of grits they did not eat a lot of grits from where his family came from so again, that shows that soul food is not just one thing, you know, for one group of people. Once, when, when grits are contributed to soul food, people think, might think that all black people eat them. My dad's family didn't eat grits. They weren't part of what the story was. Now they ate rice and they ate rice in, in that manner. It could be used for breakfast. It could use, use in savory applications. It could be used in, in pudding for dessert. But they did not eat grits in, in, in that same manner. I got my love uh, for grits from my mom. But my dad did something interesting with him that any of the grits were left over. He would just slice them and then just sear them in a pan and make grit croutons with them. So that's in the book as well. On the shrimp and grits recipe, I utilized my dad's frugality in order to make that dish.
2: But that's wonderful. I mean, at at that point, I immediately think of polenta. So again, we're having these, these connections to other types of cuisines and other techniques that you're bringing in. Um, from, it sounds like, all over the place.
0: Yeah, but I think techniques are, are universal. It's the way that we apply spices to it that gives it a regional format. In Italian cuisine, of course, they use polenta in the South, and in Seoul we use grits. They both come from the same kind of understanding and background. It's a way that we can apply spices to that will give a distinction to the country, the origin, or, or the region in which people are, are using those techniques from.
2: Tell us about spices. This is a thing that you've mentioned several times now, and I know it's so important to bringing the right balance of flavor to a dish. What's your approach?
0: My approach with, with spices is that they are the most freeing part of cooking. That basic cooking of, uh, of any ingredient, salt and pepper, would easily do, and and you can satisfy most people. But the exploration of spices really led to the origin of people in the region and their own story. If you look at the Africas with the cayenne pepper and the chili powder, and then you get into the Caribbean where they might pull up more Spanish influence into it, that's telling a whole story outside of the basics of salt and pepper. And it really gives people freedom. I mean, just the freedom to say, I want to be cook something that's more West Indian, or I want to cook something something from Kerala. Or I want to, you know, involve some Asian influences into it. It's all through those spices that we can accomplish that.
1: You know, you 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 talk about one uh, fruit in particular appear you know, appears throughout. I mean, you talk about melons of all varieties, but it's the uh, the peach, and of course, we're talking about Georgia, the Georgia peach. You tend to do a lot with the peaches or other, as you call them, stone fruit. Talk a little bit about
0: that. Peaches, they're just a magical fruit uh, for me because they are really versatile. You can just easily slice a peach or just bite into one and, you know, in, and do the peach stand so the juice doesn't, you know, soil your shirts or pants. Or, or you can slice them if they're a little bit under and, and pickle them. Uh, you can make salsa with them. They're just a universal uh, uh, fruit that can be utilized in a lot of different manners that carry on flavors, um, that they're paired with. If you add jalapenos, like the peach and jalapeno salsas, you'll get the spice from the jalapeno, but it won't overpower the peach. The peach will give that kind of balance to it. If you want to use it in a sweeter application, it'll pick up the sugars, but it won't lose its own characteristics. That's why I love using peaches so much.
2: Do you have a favorite recipe from the ones that you have in here, or is it impossible to choose?
0: It, it, it's becoming uh impossible to choose uh, as a person who actually, you know, when you're writing a cookbook, you have a lot of people helping you test recipes, but knowing that I've tested all the recipes with with the people and knowing that they're all really sound and they're really delicious, it's coming almost impossible. However, I do have a soft spot for my mom's catfish and hot sauce. That dish to me is the most magical dish that reminds me of being a five, six, seven year old kid that I always refer back to whenever I'm feeling blue and missing my parents' deer.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. W- were there any surprises for you as you were um, writing the book? Any aha moments that came to, g- came to you while you were putting together these recipes or having people try them?
0: The biggest aha moment in writing the book is the conversations that I had with my sister, about things that I forgot um, that we all did together in, in, in cooking, and that my sister is a picture hoarder. She has all the pictures in the front of the book. Uh, she kept them all, and I was just amazed how many sets of pictures. She probably went through a 1,000 pictures and pulled out those 50 that are in the front of the book. And that kind of coming together through food and memory is what I want people to utilize the book for.
2: And the subtitle of the book is A Chef's Culinary Evolution. Where do you see yourself evolving from and to, and where do you think you might evolve to next?
0: I really see myself evolving from uh, a kid who grew up in a household that food was always used to bring people together. And I see myself as an author uh, spreading that same kind of gospel around the world, that the, most of the problems in the world today we come from the fact that we don't necessarily eat together as much. And hopefully uh, people will utilize the book as an emphasis of doing so.
2: And where do you see in Southern cuisine going? I and mean, A lot of things are happening right now. A lot of really exciting research is being done into the history of it. A lot of innovation is happening. Um, what's most exciting for you in that movement right now?
0: What's most exciting for uh, me in the movement of, of Southern food is seeing how other uh, chefs are interpreting uh, soul food, especially African-American chefs. When you look at James Beard Award and you have five winners uh, this year, which has never taken place before, and and you look at someone like Eduardo Jordan who won with June Baby, uh, a traditional soul food restaurant, you and Rodney Scott, a traditional barbecue restaurant, you're starting to understand that people are are giving credit to this food and it gives me more freedom to actually put it in a fine dining context.
2: And what's next for you and your restaurant?
0: Well, you know, considering that the book just came out, I'm really just focusing on the book. However, I'm always looking at what's next and and really my focus is um, capturing and helping uh, people with, uh, establish, uh, soul food restaurants either, uh, expand or if they want to get out preserving that history of food. I was working on a project in, uh, LA and we want to use Crenshaw Avenue as the emphasis of, uh, focus on the cuisine. And I could only find two menus from 1940 to 1962. Uh, that represented all the restaurants on Crenshaw Avenue at that time. So uh, in my own research of writing the book, that if I didn't write down these recipes and my grandparents and parents didn't write down the recipes, then my entire family's legacy of food may not have been captured. We've
2: been talking with Todd Richards, and you can find his book Soul in stores right now. Todd, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Uh, thank you all for having me.
2: I'm Rose Fox.
1: And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
2: Next up, PW Director of Special Editorial Projects, Craig Teicher, talks about BookCon. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Tessa Fontaine, the author of The Electric Woman, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: I'm Mark Rotella.
2: And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Director of Special Editorial Projects, Craig Teicher, is here to tell us all
2: about BookCon.
1: Hello, yeah, Craig. Hi.
2: Hi.
1: Hey, you guys.
2: Very nice to have you on the show.
1: It's lovely to be here again. So this is the uh, the, 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 the part that follows Book Expo, formerly Book Expo America. So tell us what's going on with BookCon this year.
3: Well, so BookCon um, is in a lot of ways a, like a YA. I mean, the big focus is, is sort of YA and middle grade literature. So there's some really big stars from that world there, though really the biggest attraction is President Bill Clinton and James Patterson, who will be at BookCon on Sunday to launch their collaboratively written novel. Uh, Which is not YA. No, no. (laughs) Uh, It's called The President is Missing, and I guess in it the president goes missing. And I guess we find out where... So they'll be there. Um, are they going to be reading or, or speaking I, I, or signing? That's not entirely clear from the from the the promo stuff, but they they will be signing. Uh, I mean, I think tickets are totally sold out, yeah. and all the signings this year are ticketed, so you can't just show up. Their signing is sold out. They're and all they've said is it's like a book launch is, right. is the big event. So maybe they'll be on stage.
1: So you were saying Talking. this is really a big, big thing for young adults. So yeah. young adult novels, and you've got people coming in for writers who have a cult following. Tell us about some of them. Well, so there's a bunch
3: of like uh, people who are actually famous from other mediums. So like Ted Diggs will be there with his childhood best friend, Shane Evans, to promote mm-hmm. their newest uh, picture book collaboration, which is called I Love You More Than. Uh, and it's it's sort of a love letter for from parents who travel a lot Or who are away a lot To their mm-hmm. kids The author of the Dork Diary series Will be there Rachel Renee Russell um, uh, Jeff Kinney uh, author of Wimpy Kid will be there on Sunday, and there's this kind of a walk-through Wimpy Kid experience where you can kind of walk through a part of the last book. Huh. Uh, that really, will be there the whole time. Is it kind of like set up like a haunted house or something. It sounds like it, though. I, I, again, hard to tell from the from the literature, but it sounds like you kind of right. go on a
1: plane. Yeah, but not a real plane. Right. Oh wow, that sounds pretty good. And and the attendance has been growing with these. Yes, yeah. it it has been growing. Uh
3: they because this show unlike book expo, this is more of a walk up show, so they don't have exact estimates. Uh but but they are feeling confident that more people will walk up this year, right? Than last.
2: Well, President Clinton is I'm sure a draw for lots of people and uh, it'll it'll be interesting to go to what for us is an industry event and see the secret service wandering around. That's true. Other
3: things, uh the the um Shannon and Dean Hale, who do the Princess in Black series, will be there. That's a big favorite of my daughter's Mm. and mine. Um, Abby Jacobson from Broad City on Comedy Central will be there. Uh, She has a new book.
2: It sounds like it's going to be very exciting. And it's taking place over the weekend, which makes it very easy for people to just kind of wander by, even though the Javits Center is maybe not the most wanderable Yes, location
1: largely inaccessible. Well, unless now you could, I think, access it through the uh, High Line. Oh, that's true. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, so that might be a good endpoint for those who start in um, Fourteenth Street or or below and uh, just end up there. So
2: that's a nice thought. Just take a walk up the High Line and then go go hang out with some authors. Yeah,
1: right. Exactly. Sounds like a good way to spend a weekend to me. Now, are you planning to go yourself? I think I will be there Saturday. And are you planning to bring your kids? No. Okay. <laughs> not, not, not for the chance to meet no. some of their favorite authors. May, maybe else. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I don't yeah. know.
3: Yeah. Just had my daughter's birthday party and it was traumatizing. Right. I feel like now I just want to sit her in front of a TV and <laughs> not talk to her. Right. Never yeah. leave yeah. the house yeah. again. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and just give her a book to read. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> if she's lucky. Yeah. Well, um, thank
2: you so much, Greg. Yeah. It's always good to have you on the show. Likewise, to be here. And now a final word from our sponsors.
3: Beyond the Headlines, Beyond the Routine, Beyond the Book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book.
1: And I'm Andrew Alviny, Senior Writer at Publishers Weekly.
3: Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other.
1: Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more.
3: You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series
2: and subscribe at
3: beyondthebook.com.
1: And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella.
2: And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: We're off next week for New York Rights Fair, Book Expo, and BookCon. Hope to see you there. When we get back, we'll have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing.
2: In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash PWRadio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening.
1: You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.